You're listening to an ACA podcast. Good evening, everyone. We're a smaller, intimate group, but it's a really great pleasure to welcome you this evening to ACA um, for um, the sixth lecture in our series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. And for this evening's um, iteration of the series, we're really delighted to welcome Julie Ewington, who will present a lecture titled Almost Anything Goes, focusing on Sculpture Escape 1975 at Mildura. The Defining Moments series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series explores selected game changes in Australian art, addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects, staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and reflecting on the ways these exhibitions and projects have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. To begin with, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, work and gather here this evening, and extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who might join us this evening. The Defining Moment series um, wouldn't be possible without the support of a number of key partners, and I'm pleased to extend our heartfelt thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who have been very generous long-time supporters of ACCA and our lecture series. And we're also pleased to acknowledge COVA, the Centre for Visual Arts um, at the University of Melbourne, who are supporting the lecture series as a research partner. And we're equally grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R, our event partners, the City of Melbourne, CAPI, and of course, the Melbourne Gin Company, who provided this evening's cocktail. Um, in, this, in this first year of the series, with John Caldor's lecture on Christo and Jean-Claude's Wrapped Coast in 1968 and 69, and then followed by John Keane's lecture called Digging for Honey Ants, which explored the Papunya School murals in 1971, it's been interesting to reflect upon significant projects which have taken place in remote and regional contexts, and in contexts beyond the Gallery Museum, outside of strictly institutional frameworks. The same is true for Mildura in the 1970s, which became an unlikely epicentre of contemporary experimental art in Australia. Under the visionary leadership of Tom McCulloch, the Mildura Sculpture Triennial unfolded as a freewheeling consideration of contemporary forms that the conventional state art institutions had barely contemplated, let alone accommodated. Instead, in a relatively remote rural context, Mildura became one of the key critical um, centres where the expanded field of what became known as, in Australia and New Zealand at least as post-object art unfolded through forms and practices such as land art, conceptual and performance art, community engaged social practices, feminist practices, ephemeral installations and artists living and working on site and in community. It's interesting and notable in the Australian context that these histories and traditions initially happened beyond the white cube of the gallery with alternative and contemporary art spaces themselves being very much in their infancy or still to come. As a young student, the ever intrepid Julie Ewington saw the 1973, 75 and 1978 Mildura exhibitions. So we are very delighted to welcome Julie to reflect upon these contexts and to explain why the 1975 Mildura Sculpturescape in particular uh, she considers so significant and outstanding. Julie Ewington, I'm sure, will be known to many of you um, as an independent writer, curator, and broadcaster, and one of our most eminent senior curators. Between uh, 2001 and 14, she was the head of Australian art at the Queensland Art Gallery, 
and Gallery of Modern Art, where she oversaw many significant exhibitions and curatorial projects of Australian and indeed international art. Since 2014, Julia has written numerous books, catalogues and essays, as well as regular reviews for journals including the Monthly and Art Forum, and has published major monographs on artists including Fiona um, Hall and Del Catherine Barton, among others. In 2016, Julia curated the sculpture of Bronwyn Oliver for Tarawara Art Museum, and in 2017, she was part of the curatorial team for Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism here at ACCA. And most recently, Julie was the curator of The Housing Question at the Penrith Regional Gallery, featuring the work of Helen Grace, Narelle Jubilin, and Cher Delis, which concluded just last week. So we're delighted to welcome Julie back to Melbourne and back to Acker, and we very much look forward to her insights and her thinking this evening. Um, following Julie's lecture, we'll have time for some questions from the audience, and um, Miriam, my colleague, Miriam Kelly, who's curator at Acker, will have um, a microphone at hand, so please, um, uh, join me in welcoming uh, speaker this evening, Julie Ewington. Thank you, Max. That's very generous remarks. Okay. As Max said, Mildura was a very unlikely place to become a, a contemporary art centre, and those of you who know Mildura well will perhaps, perhaps admit that uh, in the 1960s it, was, it didn't seem likely that it would become that kind of, of place. But, but what Mildura did was to institute a sculpture triennial in, in 1961, and in 1965, a young art teacher called Tom McCullough became, well, he, be, he became promoted from gallery volunteer to director, really, in short order, and left his teaching job to become a curator. Under his energetic and astute leadership, the Mildura Art Centre achieved an astonishing place, really, in contemporary arts practice. And as Max said, in 1973, 75 and 78 in particular, the Mildura Sculpture Triennial event transformed into something quite different from the straightforward exhibition of sculpture that it had been before, something much more interesting. The project was visionary. It quickly came to fill an urge, what was an urgent national need and niche, and it became profoundly influential on the course of Australian and even New Zealand contemporary art because the New Zealanders showed, showed in, in fairly substantial numbers. The Mildura exhibitions were innovative and daring with a range that, as Max has said, the state art museums just couldn't even deal with at that time, the architecture, the, the, the protocols, everything. Now that situation changed quite quickly and this was in great part down to Mildura. As Max said, the first of the contemporary art spaces were only just starting at the Ewing and Payton here at Art Space, well, Art Space in Sydney was still actually some years off. Um, the Experimental Art Foundation was late 74, early 75. So the whole network of contemporary art spaces, alternative art spaces that we know now, that didn't exist. Right? It just didn't exist. So where was this kind of work to be shown? And Mildura gave that kind of work a home. It's astonishing. As Max said, if art, performance art, some feminist art, really an amazing, 
an amazing uh, set of works were debuted and Mildura commissioned and supported some of the first manifestations in a public art gallery in this country of this expanded field, this post-object conceptual ephemeral art. Now let's see if I've got the right, yes I have. My first image is this one shot of a work by Kevin Mortensen, the outstanding work of the 1975 Mildura. It was called, not unsurprisingly, Delicatessen. And it was a delicatessen shop in one of the main streets, which was occupied. I'll come back to it later. Um, Leo, is that right? Larry knows who this bloke is here. He's now a prominent lawyer. But that's just a Mildura story. <laughs> and as you can see, the, the, the work inhabited what had been a delicatessen shop in the main street. So, what was shown at Mildura in the 1970s? The works were often sculptures or near to sculpture, and sculpture was the kind of nest of the work that was shown. But many works that were shown in 75, 73, 75 and 78 were ephemeral or text-based or performative. And that description, near to sculpture or nested by sculpture, is the crux of the Mildura Sculpturescape project in the 1970s. Since I'm speaking here, near Ron Robertson Swan's Yellow Vault, originally commissioned in 1978, which was the year of the last of these sculpturescapes, I don't need to tell you what passions sculpture can arise. In Mildura, very strong beliefs, commitments, and emotions about art practice were revealed. What was sculpture? What was the significance of the various ephemeral forms of sculptural practice? And what was the import and the relevance of the newly prominent media, at least in some people's eyes, of video, performance, documentation, and even male art? Now, Mildura's, uh, Mildura's influence on artists and audiences was profound. And that was especially when McCulloch took the, as I said, the scope into a, a wider field. After having done two of these Mildura sculpturescapes, McCulloch, who was everywhere for a couple of years, became the director of the second Biennale of Sydney in 1976, which was the first Biennale that really set the pattern for what was going to come. The scholar and curator Anne Sanders has dubbed McCulloch's way of making exhibitions as the Mildura model. And here I want to pay tribute to her 2009 PhD thesis from ANU. Anne's thesis is a salutary caution about how crucial it is to write histories before they are forgotten. And she actually was able to interview a lot of the principals who were exhibitors, um, including John Davis before his death. Um, in the period leading up to her writing up. As Anne notes, I quote, the Mildura model was profoundly important for the way Australian art developed in the metropolitan centres, not only for the Biennale of Sydney, but also for the subsequent, and I imagine almost forgotten, Australian sculpture triennials in Melbourne between 1981 and 1993, also established by McCulloch, and indeed much else besides. <coughs> Excuse me. I should just say my title, Anything Goes, why that? It is a nod to Paul Taylor's 1987 anthology because the Mildura sculpturescapes were generously encompassing events and key achievements of Australian contemporary art in the 1970s. And Daniel Thomas, the veteran curator, has a very important text about sculpture, and Mildura, including Mildura, in that book. But I also use the idea of Anything Goes because 
As McCulloch's eventual resignation in 1978 showed, not everything did in fact go in Mildura, and he was eventually sort of pushed out, actually. But if Mildura had a defining moment when anything went, it was in 1975, and I came across this very phrase, defining moment, in Anne Sanders's thesis about the 1975 sculpturescape. I want to note one other thing in passing, one more thing about history and memory, the extreme variability of the photographic memory of the Mildura exhibitions and events, and even its complete absence on occasion. That's why the images that I'm going to show you are such a peculiar and odd collection. Uh, there'll be some of you who I don't think have seen a pink slide for many years, but you're going to see one tonight. Some people will remember why slides went pink. That's another whole story. I should thank my colleague Eric Riddler, the visual librarian at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, who's bringing together a terrific archive of visual material about the Mildura sculpturescapes. If anyone has anything, Eric is your man, though I know that there's also a big archive in Mildura as well. In his lecture in this series, Ian Millis commented on the lack of NGV photographs of one of their exhibitions, Object and Idea. That's also true for aspects of Mildura, but first of all, as I said, to set the scene after the Mortensen, I'll show you Bert Flugelman on the right, Tom McCullough with a rather fearsome mullet, um, standing together in 1973 on the site of Flugelman's Australian Cottage, sometimes called Pioneer Cottage. I'll talk a bit more about that later on. Okay, that's to explain why they're such a weird bunch of images, including some that I took myself. A bit more about Tom McCulloch, first of all. He was originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland. He emigrated to Australia as a, in his late teens, trained as an art teacher in Melbourne, lived in Mildura with his family, and as I said, eventually became the director of the Art Centre, driving the sculpture triennials into becoming the sculpture scapes. His key innovation, as Max has suggested, was moving outside the gallery walls. What changed between 1970 when he, he did two exhibitions, 67 and 70, but what changed between 70 and 73 was his inspired idea to use the Murray River Flats below the Mildura Arts Centre as a sculpture ground. This is where they are, in fact, there. What McCulloch said was that this was to be, quote, a post-Christo landscape in which an Australian public gallery becomes totally concerned with the outstallation of important works which define and react to a set environment. I'm thrilled with the word outstallation. haven't come across that before. Moreover, McCulloch's curatorial method was novel. He engaged peer selectors, including Bert Flugelman, who was there just about to go to Adelaide, Sydney and Adelaide in the period. And he was in constant contact with leading artists and curators in the various capital cities. He opened Mildura up to these um, selectors and the people that they suggested and also to their students. The students were um, used as volunteers, they occasionally got to exhibit and through the people emerging through the art colleges, McCulloch picked up young emerging artists really early as exhibitors. This was a revelation. McCulloch energised a field and brought it together for the first time in one place. It was a very open, very generous curatorial practice, a very interesting one. 
As Max said, as a relatively young student, I saw those three shows. Now, the crucial context for 73, I'll deal a little bit with this first. The crucial context for 73 was that this, the widespread understanding that this was a time of change. It was just after, I mean, literally a couple of months after this 1972 federal election with the victory of the Whitlam government, and very, very soon after the withdrawal of Australian troops from Vietnam, which was such a huge thing for my generation. And importantly, the Sculpture Scape opened in April 1973, just after the announcement of what Whitlam was going to do with a rethought and rebooted Australia Council, what eventually became the Australia Council. Mildura, 1973, seemed at that time exactly like a harbinger of a new era in the arts. It was a pretty terrific show. But it was the 1975 edition of the Sculpturescape that was outstanding. It was fantastic, and in this lecture I'll explain why. Now, it's true that I was there, but there's no special virtue in that, I don't think, except for the photographs, and I'm painfully aware that nostalgia is pernicious. I want to have a fighting chance of limiting my rose-coloured view of the three Mildura sculpturescapes I attended. In the first two, I was there with groups of young artists, in one occasion living in a tent. I can recall to this day the extreme discomfort and the perishing cold. The tent was a piece of plastic, a twig and a sock, <laughs> which held the plastic to the twig. And I won't mention swimming the Murray at midnight. It seemed like a really good idea to go from one state to the other. There were other adventures. In short, it was fabulous. It's really good that our parents don't know what we do. But youthful escapades aside, Mildura was fabulous for a very particular reason. It was so clearly a watershed moment. This is what's crucial. I do need to, to tell you that at that time, those of us who were there in 73 and 75, we were completely aware of the significance of the Mildura Sculpturescape. We knew it was a defining moment, we really did, and that we were witnessing it, that it was a, a huge shift that, is, that, was, that had been happening in Australian art and was happening right there, and we knew that we were seeing it right then and there. That, that happens occasionally. It's extremely interesting if you understand that the ground is shifting slightly, and literally the ground. What had happened over that time, I would say from around 1967, 68, and one of the people I think of in 1967 is Viv Binns, actually, for some of her interactive works in that notorious show at Waters. So I, I took that as a starting date, but there might be earlier ones. What was happening was that with sculpture and objects and you know so on, processes were becoming important, ephemeral processes, and a different and much wider attitude to artistic ideas, subjects, and media. This was all taking place as we watched. Now, this started elsewhere but it was brought together in Mildura by Tom. And as I say, we, we were a mix of generations. This is one random image. I wish I could show you more. These are students from the National Arts School who were brought down by Ron Robertson, Swan and Ian McKay in 1973. The teachers brought truckloads of students with them. There are two that we can recognize. This is a, a chap called Martin Murphy, but better known as Martin Plaza 
from mental as anything. And some of you may know Jennifer, Jen Barber, the person second from the left who became very well known as a member of the women's art movement um, at the same time in Sydney. So still a practicing artist who I see from time to time. So there were, you know, and the guitars were always there. As Sanders notes, and as I confirmed, lots of the sculptors brought their students. Ross Grounds, who will feature later, bought them from Diamond Creek. Ken Scarlett bought them from Melbourne Teachers College. Bob Parr from Canberra School of Art. And Bert Flugelman and Bill Clements bought them from the South Australian School of Art. So there were lots and lots of students. I was an art history student at Sydney Uni. I tagged along. I had a really great time. And just to make it personal for the minute, some of the National Art School students, Ron Robertson Swan's sculpture students, as it happened, were at Mildura because they were in open and consistent revolt against the dicta of formalist sculptures as it was expressed in that sculpture workshop in Sydney. It was pretty full on, the debate. Now, apart from bringing everybody together in this field, I thought there were three things I wanted to say about, well, actually four, about the significance of the sculpturescapes. The three key issues that will bring together 73 and 75, I'm not going to say anything about 78 because it was a massively disappointing show, actually, um, though I, I do have a number of images of it. Um, first of all, this was where sculpture met the flight from the object, to take the title of Donald Brooks' famous 1969 power lecture. This was the moment of dematerialization, to borrow another key word, obviously, from Lucy Lepard and John Chandler's 1967 text. Now, this tendency to dematerialization, let's see if I can, yes, no, I've got one more moment before I give you another image. This tendency to dematerialization was well entrained in Australia through the early 1970s. You've already heard in this series John Caldor speaking about Christo and Ian Miller speaking about object and idea, which was in 73. But Mildura brought it all together nationally and first by a whisker. It did it more thoroughly than Daniel Thomas's recent Australian art in Sydney later that year, which was a very interesting show, and much more comprehensively than the NGV's object and idea that Ian spoke about, which was a very good show with six artists. And yes, I trucked along to see all of them. A few examples from Mildura 73, which opened in the April of that year, show this trend. And I want to start with 73 because I want to show that the trend accelerated in a context of very rich but contested ways of making art, hotly contested. It's not as though there was a switch off from sculpture and then a development of dematerialization. These tendencies were in contention right throughout the period. For example, there's a work like this. John Armstrong, who was also an object idea, his big rack of 1973 at Mildura, which was um, uh, I believe purchased for their collection. You can see that it's down on the sculpture ground. Now the sculpture scape, just to take a step back, the sculpture scape was the old rubbish dump below the famous Chafee Brothers um, homestead Rio Vista and just, just there was the Murray. So it was, it's a fabulous location, red dirt and river gums. What's not to like? It was just wonderful. And it was, it was like four hectares, I think. It's huge. It's a really big area. So John, it was a wonderful place to put a, a, a tough, rough work like John's big rack. But other works 
which were, showed this, the tendency to dematerialization much more clearly. Work by Nolene Lucas, her Untitled of 1973, and the, the detail is what's crucial. Huh? It's a classic. It might as well have been an illustration for that Lippard article. And then a much less well-known artist, who I have had difficulty tracking some of the Melbourne folk may know, Graham Davis, huh? who showed these plastic works which are, between them, have these shavings, these grass in these little pockets. So work that was ephemeral, that was going to take a beating from the, um, from the elements and that engaged in an interactive way with the, with the um, environment around it. Another work, and I'm sorry, I haven't got the title of this yet, by Tony Colling. I was very keen to show this because, again, the cliffs behind and the homestead and um, very long, very old established um, uh, bunya pine, it looks like. So you can see the, the, the actual area where the sculptors were working was absolutely splendid um, for, and quite novel. Nothing like this had been seen before anywhere. Despite the fact that there were these um, challenging, to some eyes, challenging and complex and sophisticated dematerialised sculptures, there were still plenty of others that had a, a slightly different sensibility. This is by this pool by Peter Cole, which was eventually closed down because there was a problem with the water quality, but we'll pass over that. Didn't pass council muster. There, were, there was a lot of pop-influenced sculpture, cheeky, but sculpture nevertheless. And this had its soulmates, Tony Bishop's Arcadia of 1972, which was bought for the Mildura collection because it was an acquisitive, um, it had been an acquisitive project all the time, and Bob Jennings' um, rather fabulous untitled, Robert Jennings' Untitled of 1973. So there was, a, there was you know, quite different sorts of work. But the most notorious sign of what was happening with dematerialization was undoubtedly this work, and this is the only image that exists of this work anywhere. This is Tim Burns's infamous explosion work, right, which survives only in these appalling images taken from a Super 8 film made by Bill Clements from the South Australian School of Art. And this is the destruction by Tim Burns of the work before the council could come in and destroy it that morning because it was understood to have constituted a public danger. I mean, it was, a, it, it was not a, a kind of OHLS kind of time, really, in terms of the setting up of the sculpture scape. It was much more relaxed than perhaps some installations might be now. But even so, Tim did um, kind of um, stretch the boundaries of what was possible. I do actually remember that morning, he said to me, I'm going to go down and I'm going to, I'm going to blow it up. What do you think? And I said, well, that sounds reasonable. It's, it's probably going to be safer if you do it yourself. And um, uh, that, that's good. But if you, and he said, I'm just going to sneak down there now because it was about seven o'clock in the morning. I'm going to sneak down there now and do it. I said, that's pretty good. But if you want to do that, I suggest you might want to take off the orange overalls first because I think you might be quite noticeable going down there, and he said, good idea, and he went down and blew it up. I didn't bother going down, but anyway, I, perhaps I should have taken a camera and gone down. So we go from Tim Burns and this pathetic image to that, 
which was also which was shown in 75. So as I say, different kinds of work and in contention. And indeed there was contention. Ron Robertson Swan, amongst other sculptors, reacted vehemently to the um, introduction of the uh, of the ephemeral work vehemently, and um, there, there was a real split within the community. Um, as I said, this one was acquired. Um, her magnificent, Inga King's magnificent Black Sun was acquired for, for Mildura. There was one work, and I'm going to show you three very different images, one work which I still love to this day, which was a, a kind of a somewhere in the middle of these kinds of tendencies. This is Tony Colling's Magical To Do With Blue, of 1975, now we're getting into 75, which was acquired in the same year by the National Gallery of Australia. As you can see, it is tall and it is metal, but against that blue sky, it did something very particular. It matched the blue sky, it doesn't seem to here, but it, it dissolved in a way against the sky that the Australian painters of the 19th century had found too bright, and it was... Um, it was, I thought, a magnificent work. And this will give you an idea of the variation in the documentation. Here's a, a pretty good pink slide for you. Now, this work of Tony's, I think, leads on to, for me at any rate, to the second point that I want to make. Uh, there, there were other works, and you will see other works in 75 that are more dematerialized than that. But I want to go to a second point first and then come back to the ephemeral again later. The second point I want to make is that what I think we registered there in 73 and 75 was that this was the ground where sculpture met the Australian landscape tradition head on. And I, I, just, I don't think I've seen anybody else write a whole lot about this, so I hope if, if you have, correct me. As you've seen, in 1973, McCulloch had persuaded the Mildura Council to let him colonise the rubbish dump below the Mildura Arts Centre and turn it into a rough-and-ready sculpture park. The placement of arts, art outside in that Australian landscape with its red river gums and its rich red dirt was very striking to me when I first saw it as an art student in 19... art history student in 1973 who was being taught by Bernard Smith. Whatever else one might say about Australian art then, the preeminence of landscape in imagery of the country and the nation was well understood. We students were discussing, for example, Fred Williams' originality in the genre at that time, though 1973 was too early for the significance of the desert painting movement that John discussed to have registered widely. That would eventually change our perceptions absolutely of the Australian landscape forever, but it hadn't quite happened then. But what John Davis was doing at Mildura, oh sorry, that's just, um, that's a feral image that's gone in the wrong place. I'll just go past it. Um, what John Davis was doing was immediately clear. This is his tree piece of 1973, and I'm taking a hop back again. What John Davis was doing, intervening into the Australian landscape, had to do with found materials. And you see I've sliced together three rather inadequate images to make one that might work. He was systematically intervening into the existing landscape by, by winding these um, canvases around the trees. This is tree piece. He was finding a way of marking negative space rather than making objects. He was making extensive and lateral works that were in and on a canonical Australian landscape site. 
by the way, both McCulloch, McCulloch and Davis were close friends. They'd both been art teachers in Mildura, and they had been in lockstep for quite a lot of their career. Very long and professional and personal association, which was formed up there at Mildura. Here's the second of the pink slides. Oh, hang on. And the third one is a really great image. This is all the good photographs in this set are by Ken Scarlett. I can tell you right that right, for sure. Ken Scarlett, the great historian of Melbourne sculpture. So here's tree piece in the back. And in the front is another piece called Unrolled, which had a number of ceramic elements in it. That um, Unrolled um, came a cropper. It, it got you know, badly trodden on and it suffered a great deal. But, but you see, John's commitment to the ephemeral was... Um, was unremitting, and so both pieces were really understood to be radical in their way, uh, and 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 were very much um, were, were very um, important in the in the understanding of uh, of Mildura and its and its um, achievement. Some of the other folk who showed there, this is in 1975, were absolutely unknown: Alison Kusland and Margaret Bell. Does anyone know them? They're very hard to track down. I think they were students at the time. Alison Kusland and Margaret Bell were allowed, were given an allotment of so many square metres and they planted a garden. It was very simple. It was just a garden of plants and it was much admired for its simplicity. Domenico de Clario um, put in a, a, a kind of a... Oh, that's sorry, that's Kusland and Bell's garden again. Domenico de Clario did this rather fabulous work, influenced by his seeing Arte Provera, Arte Provera in Italy. He'd just come back from studying in Milan. And what he did was to place these unlikely objects, these informal objects, in a very strict way across what Arthur Streeton had once described so memorably as Our Untidy Bush. That's the title of a painting in the National Gallery of Victoria collection. Our Untidy Bush was here imposed upon by the structure of uh, this placement. Even though it doesn't look systematic, it is. It's the objects that are unsystematic and informal. So I'll just finish this account of landscape interventions with Bert Flugelman's Australian cottage, sometimes called the Pioneer Cottage. I could not resist this image because of the car, actually, I have to say. The, um, the horn, the white horn, is by a little-known but interesting artist called Eva Pahutska, who was very well known for being the only woman in the um, recent Australian art show, and who had a... His work was... Um, she was a student of um, Madalena Abakanovitz, and she normally worked with macrame and with, um, with fibre. But this horn was a fibreglass piece, was fabulously located and was a very um, unusual piece from her. So what we have here with the Pioneer Cottage is um, something that was a bit of a sign of the times too. Flugelman was a key figure at Mildura and in the development of the trend towards dematerialisation because he'd been the first um, boss of the tin sheds up in Sydney. He'd been a member of a group called Optronic Kinetics, which was exactly what it sounds like, that worked with technology and with dematerialisation. And along with Donald Brook, he'd been one of the key supporters of the trend towards the post-object. But he was also a consistent exhibitor in Mildura and one of McCulloch's reference points in the Metropolitan Centres. He'd won the Mildura Sculpture Prize with a, a welded, and, welded metal piece called Equestrium, which is now, which is still in the Mildura collection. 
with Donald Brooke as the judge in 1967. It's a classic kind of mid-20th century figurative piece, you know, very kind of muscular and handsome. And it's a, it was a classic choice for a classic, of a, sorry, classic choice of a classic piece. But what it does show, I think, is in those six years how far Brooke and Flugelman had come from real actual sculpture to dematerialization. Now, the, the, um, this is where I mention Rosalind Krauss's important text, Grids, because this is clearly a 1979 text. This is clearly a moment when she is summing up what artists were seeing. This is a very particular imposition of gridded structure through which one could see onto an Australian landscape. At a, a clash, as it were, a coming together or a clash of human-made systems and the natural environment. And this was engaging a lot of artists at the time, young Imans Tillers, who was one of them, for example, who was interested in grids and the um, application of grids to, um, in different ways to the world. Now, it's clear that um, Flugelman was playing with this idea, with this cottage, in this egregiously, I call it egregiously exact rendering of a slab cottage. Simultaneously, I think he was taking the piss out of two intersecting ideas, the modernist grid and the Australian tradition of nationalist landscapes with the pioneering baggage that it had as well in its train. He had also spent time in the bush as a young man. It was part of his personal experience. This shows the cottage a couple of months after the opening when the um, verbiage had grown up more than somewhat. And finally, in a nod to Fluxus meeting the Australian bush, this fantastic work again from 73 by a guy called Dave Morrissey. He called it 1962, that's Dave and a couple of young uh, con uh, conspirators. It was just exactly what it appears to be. It was a found shed. Dave Morrissey was one of those people who left art practice very quickly after that. He became a very distinguished anthropologist working on Sydney rock art. Like Ian Millis, exactly at the same time, exactly the same cohort, uh, became disillusioned with what he saw as a dead end of art and cheerfully, he was always cheerful, cheerfully left it behind. Now, this Australian landscape play takes me to the third key significance in Mildura that I want to speak about, which was the rise of the ephemeral and the performative. And I've distinguished that from the dematerialization earlier on, and I hope I'm not going to get myself into a theoretical puzzle here. But I wanted to say that some of the work that was happening at Mildura actually came from different origins. It came from the performative rather than from a consideration of how to pull apart a sculptural Object. And this is where we come back to the fabulous delicatessen. Sanders called the 1975 sculpture scape the post-object show. It was the one really where this tendency became absolutely cemented for a, a cohort of artists and their followers in Mildura at that time. And a lot of work that's subsequently been shown over the last 40 years has come from that moment. Now, Delicatessen was universally agreed to be the finest work in that particular show, and as I said, it was shown in a shop on the main street. Noel Sheridan agreed that it was, Ken Scarlett agreed that it was, and we all certainly at that time thought it was something completely magical. I'm going to quote Ken Scarlett because I found it eerie to read his words. They, it, was, it summed up so exactly what I had thought. I thought I couldn't put it better myself. He said it was, he said it was easy to describe 
but, and I quote, extraordinarily difficult to explain how successful it was. I walked into what appeared to be an empty, disused shop in the main street of Mildura. Then he went on, there were a few objects looking somewhat like, that's another one of the outside, a few objects looking somewhat like legs of ham hanging from the butcher's rail. They were made from animal bones, balsa wood, pieces of canvas and polyester resin and were obviously the work of Kevin Mortensen. Then he went on, it was some time before I became aware of a slightly strange gentleman in an out of fashion blue suit. When I began to talk with him, the whole situation changed, becoming both more real and yet quite surreal at the same time. The whole environment and performance were contrived, yet it took on a surrealist quality that was strangely convincing. That is exactly how I remember it. It was the most thoroughgoing work of this kind that any of us had ever seen. It was so perfectly presented. The actor, because he was an actor, was in character all day standing in the shop. He would reply um, in, you know, um, uh, he, he wouldn't say anything substantial when engaged in conversation. He would be kind of uh, slightly mysterious. So there was this out-of-body feeling in the whole claustrophobic environment inside the shop. It was, it was perfect. What Delicatessen showed us was that McCulloch had again expanded the reach of the gallery, not just the river flats, the main street into the town, a number of shops, a number of offices. And um, I'm just going to hurry on. And Flugelman showed this again. Um, this was shown as documentation. It wasn't even at Mildura. This was shown in, um, in a tent, in fact. Uh, and it is of the burial of a number of sculptures in Canberra earlier that year in 1975. Those are the photographs as they were shown in Mildura. And finally, just two images. Ah, this is the Ozone Theatre, right? And this was where there was a particular exhibition called 12 New Zealand Artists. Amongst the respondents, curators, contacts that uh, McCulloch had mobilised was a guy called Jim Allen. Jim Allen, William Jim Allen, who's now well into his 90s, is most famous in Australia for having been the first director of Sydney College of the Arts from 1977. But he had a great presence in Mildura through uh, being one of the respondents who suggested artists for Mildura. And here is a, a kind of a motley bunch of folk sitting around in the Ozone Theatre in that group show of, of New Zealand artists. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is the door on the right, because in the door on the right was an office. Oh, I should go back. A door on the office, and you see the artist makes headlines. In the office on the right were two artists, Terry Reid, originally from Canada, and Bruce Barber from New Zealand. And, oh, sorry, sorry, Bob Kerr, from, um, originally also from, from Canada. And they were working on this... Um, this newspaper, which was a, a kind of a composite of different newspapers, the Sunraysia Daily, um, the Telegraph, the Canberra, um, the Canberra Telegraph, sorry, and the Auckland Star. 
So what they were doing was actually bringing out a newspaper, as you can see. Their work was entirely text-based, was entirely ephemeral, and was entirely responsive to what was actually happening in the town at the time. Most unhappily, I don't have any image, images of Paul Warstead's text-based project, which was at the same time in 1975. It was called, well, it was, it was the last iteration of a subversive little paper that had been brought out in the sculpture workshop at the National Arts School. It was called Life Modeling and Casting News, and it was made in conjunction with Marie McMahon and the late Michael Callahan, much better known to you all from Redback Graphics. In Mildura, they were based um, in a small office, a deserted office building, and they produced a typed document called The Last Sculpture Show in Mildura. What I can testify to, absent any corroborating photographs, that in both cases, the artist lived and worked in situ as if in a small business, pushing at and worrying at the boundaries of their practices as artists and its intersections with other forms of life lived creatively. So this was, as, this was as far as it went. And in 1978, there really was a reversion to a much more um, conservative, or rather conventional, not conservative, conventional exhibition. Uh, so it's impossible, almost, to summarize the energy and the interest of these projects. But I will have to ask you to take it on on merit, or take it as read. So for a summary, the situation then. Recent Australian art, object and idea, and the Biennale of Sydney were all in 1973. I want to show you a couple of works from each of them. Ross Grounds' Untitled, which was presented in a different form um, at Mildura in 1975. This was the exhibition famously with one woman artist. I thought it was very interesting to see these images, to see how quickly kids learn to interact, people learn to interact with the work, how quickly they adopted the invitation to climb all over it. These are images of object and idea at the National Gallery of Victoria. These are my own photographs. So, you know, Ian, Ian said there aren't any. I got them. They're pretty crappy, but I have some and I'll be able to give them to them. Uh, this is work by Tony Coling again. Um, small plants, small birds. Can you see the birds? Small budgies. I don't think he would get away with that today, but they seemed quite content at the time. Or so we thought. In the old temporary exhibition hall, which was a magnificent room. And just for something completely different, believe it or not, this is a sculpture displayed externally, and I do not know where yet, by Bobby Brown, Robert Brown, Sydney sculptor, which was part of the 1973 Sydney Biennial. So again, you know, this is the kind of sculpture that people did when they were doing proper sculpture, you know, in Sydney. Though Bobby Brown actually had a, a wider range than that. This kind of drawing in, in thin air, as it were, with steel. What I want you to note from this is the fluidity 
of these different practices at the time. As I said, a classic Sydney-style heavy metal sculpture by Bobby Brown, then a broad variety of performative works, and then, of course, the most radical of those involved really living in at Mildura, as we've seen. But this movement towards a greater openness and fluidity of practice in the media was the defining trend of the time, and it was, I think, defined first in a broad way at Mildura. Tom McCullough went on to claim that more people had seen the shows at Mildura than anybody, you know. And Daniel Thomas, as usual, um, brought him down to reality by saying no. Lots more people had seen the shows in the metropolitan centres. What was important was that artists and students had seen the show in Mildura. And Daniel is usually, and I'm afraid, right, often. This takes me to my final point, which was also my first. The enormous impact of Mildura, a regional town that made a national contribution with McCulloch's subsequent directorship of the Biennale of Sydney and the later sculpture triennials. He took his method to the cities. The Mildura sculpture exhibitions were a fine encapsulation of the tendencies of that time towards ephemerality and experimentation and diversity, but they were not the only manifestations of these new forms, nor even the earliest, as you've seen from Peter Kennedy, for example, talking about inhibitress. What they did do, as I said before, was to pull just about everybody interested in this new work into the one place. No wonder we were sleeping in a tent. There was no accommodation. McCulloch mobilised the field and relocated it to Mildura, put us all together. Ironically, eventually Mildura advocated itself out of its own niche as metropolitan centres took over the major temporary exhibitions that became so important to contemporary art. But that is another story in another decade. Encore. The encore goes to younger artists and scholars today. This is a slide of a performance by Philippa Cullen. This is Philippa. In Mildura in 1973, a very simple performance, the late Philippa Cullen. There's enormous interest amongst younger artists in the 1970s and the beginning of post-object art in Australia and its ongoing influence on contemporary art now, including the women artists of the time. On Saturday, Diana Baker-Smith, perhaps best known as a member of the group Barbara Cleveland, is presenting a lecture on Cullen in the Channels Festival Symposium at the National Gallery of Victoria. It seems as though the interest in this legacy will be continuing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. <laughs> um, that was a very insightful and very generous of you, and um, I particularly loved the reference to your tent. Um, we have questions. Uh, I have the roving mic, so please uh, put your hand up and wait for the question white mic to arrive. And Hi, Julie. Um, I'm not an artist, but I've worked quite a bit with um, contemporary uh, public sculptors. And um, when I had the pleasure of meeting Bert Flugelman about two, two decades ago, probably, he said to me that what he looked for in uh, good public art was craftsmanship. And a lot of the um, uh, sort of older established artists that I've got to know talk about the techniques that they were taught at art school, working with um, permanent... 
uh, mediums like bronze and copper. Um, and I understand a lot of those techniques aren't taught now. And I wonder if you perceive that there is less of a focus on craftsmanship these days in contemporary public, permanent contemporary public sculpture. I think if you get a gig to do a permanent public sculpture, your craftsmanship has to be beyond reproach. And if you can't do it yourself, you buy it in. So that's what, I mean, Bert could cast bronze. I saw him do it. Um, he had old-fashioned training. Um, and he came from a generation that prized that kind of facility across media, no question. Uh, but um, you, you can buy in the kinds of skills that you need, and I think many artists do that, and therefore the result would be, would be excellent. It's not possible, probably. Who's an artist? It's not, ah, it's not possible. There she is. It's not possible to muster all of the techniques that one might wish to deploy these days. One can be good at some of them, not fabulous at all of them, but it is possible to take advice and to work collaboratively. And as I said, I think public sculpture, it's so difficult. It's so managed. There are so many permissions and it must be perfect that you can get around that as long as you have, as they say these days, a good idea. So I'm giving away my convictions. Not that I don't like crafting, I do. Thank you. Is there someone in the back? Um, just further speaking to the, this uh, notion of craftsmanship, um, with the delicatessen work that you're <laughs> clearly very fond of, um, what kind of methods of craftsmanship do you see, uh, did you see occurring in that work? Oh, well, Ken Scarlett was right. It was clearly a work by Kevin Mortensen. I think we, from memory, we walked straight in on it and there was no label saying who the work was by. So you just walked into an environment and went, what's this? But the form that I showed, you know, that hanging form with the, um, the like, looked like tissue paper and um, kind of bamboo, that was a, a kind of language that Kevin Mortensen used for several decades, right? In, in fact, I think quite re even till quite recently, he would make these kinds of forms. So you understood who was the artist behind him. In all sorts of ways, Mortensen is a very, um, very skilled maker, right? But what he did on this case was exactly what I was saying in answer to your first question. He mobilized a good actor and asked the actor to perform in a particular way, right? He, he gave him a scenario so it was a collaborative piece, and perhaps I could have said more, but I didn't, about the importance of dialogue across practices that is definitely part of what happened in this period. Sophie's going to ask a really difficult question. Go for it. First of all, I just wanted to say that was really wonderful, Julie, so oh. thanks very much. Um, I'm interested in the kind of dialogue that was taking place between the, the sculptors at the time exhibiting oh. in these various iterations, um, in particular along the lines of um, perhaps a, not always an emphasis on dematerialisation and ephemerality. And I'm thinking of a couple of the women artists that you showed, um, Anger King and Eva Pachuca. Uh, they're really quite monumental pieces mm. and, and quite formalist. Mm. Um, so I, I'm wondering about... Um, 
whether, whether there were certain aspirations that the women had at that time towards proving their sculptural metal, excuse the pun, um, and also in terms of um, the reference to uh, pr you know, practices and a kind of ideology of dematerialization that's taking place in New York via people like Lucy Lippard. I mean, she had also been writing on the idea of a specifically feminine sensibility mm. in making um, with the notion of eccentric abstraction. So I'm wondering if that had kind of filtered into the dialogue and just w whether there were some um, gendered uh, interactions and even sort of politics at play in, in the sculpturescapes. The sculpture exhibitions in the 60s had been overwhelmingly dominated by men and Inga King has always been um, an outlier in that respect. Uh, I think it's um, important that Inga and Inga um, and Eva Pahutska, who came from Poland, had been trained originally in Europe. Um, I have a very healthy respect for the permission that an artistic education in Europe gives one. I believe it to be quite different from our situation here. And they were people who, um, in, particularly in Eva's case, had an established practice already. Right? And as a student of the great Madalena, late Madalena Abakanovic, she was within, she had a, a, a female teacher and patron. Right? So she was, uh, but she, I think she, 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 came, she was well received here, but wasn't here for very long, and it was very difficult for her, I think. Um, I believe that Inga King, Max, you might have worked with her. Inga King, did you ever? No. Inga King, I think, resolutely resisted any discussion of gendering in her work or applied to her work, and she's from a particular generation. She certainly um, believed it to be of no relevance to her practice. But what was beginning to happen in the 70s was that women were becoming much more prominent as practitioners as the numbers of graduates amongst the baby boomers emerged. Now, I didn't show any work by Jill Orr because I didn't see it at Mildura when she performed, but we did, we did understand the significance of Jill's performative work at Mildura, and there were very few others who engaged in specifically feminist work. Benita Ely showed a wonderful environmental work, which was about Mount Feathertop in 1978. Um, the work has since been destroyed because she didn't have room to store it. So there were, there were a number of works that were gendered, and Benita also showed the infamous locust people at the Post Object Show in Adelaide in 1976. Yes, those, those um, dialogues and discourses were out there. Yes, they were seen as being, in Sydney at any rate, fundamentally opposed to the masculine languages as they were seen to be of the heavy metal sculptures, all jokes intended, at the National Art School. Uh, it was also, if I may say, a school that was uh, known for a degree of sexual harassment and they were gendered in that way as well. I'm going to just say that. So, you know, there were, there were very, very hot debates going on in the period 72, 73. In 74, I went to Adelaide. It was a different kettle of fish there, quite different in terms of sexual politics. Um, 
Lucy Lippard's, um, some of those writings were known to people not only in Melbourne but in Sydney and in Adelaide by 73. Uh, there were the beginnings of that kind of consciousness emerging at the same time, beginnings of wondering how the idea of um, how a woman might express herself. Kusland and Bell's little garden was partly admired for its modesty and its throwaway gesture, which was so different from the imposing works. Julia, while, while the microphone is here, um, you, you mentioned um, you know, the period of Whitlam and also artists teaching in the regions. And I mean, it, it was a time when there was a lot of regional engagement, and it was a sort of policy of the government, I think, at the time. And also an engagement with the Australian landscape, um, specifically, and also with Viet the Vietnam War, the end of the Vietnam War, and, and counterculture. Um, there's a couple of great photographs you showed, you know, the, the Armstrong or the Davis, where you've got, you know, townsfolk meeting modern sculpture. And I'm just wondering what kind of relationship there was between, you know, the exhibition and, say, the public or the audience, mm. you know, passers-by or the unwitting audiences. I think a lot of folk... Larry, a lot of folk in Mildura had a lot of trouble with the show. And, in fact... Um, Tom got into a lot of trouble later on. I mean, it, it pushed the boundaries, not just for, you know, Ron Swan and Ian McKay and the sculptors, but, but for local folk as well. I mean, there was, um, there, was, um, a, a, well, there was one work that was said to involve nudity and bloodletting and pornography. There were, there were too many issues in Mildura for me to try to get across all of them in one lecture, but it, it did open those, those things up. And in fact, in 1973, the townspeople responded negatively to a work by Alex Danko and Tim Burns by throwing oranges at the performers. Uh, it was, um, I, I, it, there's no imagery. The whole thing was a complete f um, mess. There was a, it was a very complex work which involved bringing together different social groups, including marching girls and oranges from the orange fields in the theatre for a performance which was meant to be videoed. Unfortunately, the video had been pointed at the sun by someone who should remain nameless, which meant that the tube, the old Old videos used to have a thing called a Vidicon tube. You could only stand so much light pointed at the sun, it fried. Right? That was, that, so there was a whole farrago of terrible things and it was such a dreadful event, which I entirely blame one of the artists for, which I mustn't name, that I just, and I was helping them stage it, that I left and went outside. And in the, audience, in the foyer, Tom McCullough was walking tearing out his hair like this, you know. It was, and then they were throwing oranges inside, right? It was really terrible. It was just too complicated a performance piece to, to, to bring off. So there were some real negative um, responses. Ken Scarlett's photographs and ones that Anne Sanders has used in her excellent thesis show fairly bemused folk walking up and down and kind of peering at sculpture. But with the kind of interest, I think, that people have learned to um, give with less justification to sculpture by the sea. It's, you know, a lot of curiosity. You know, people are prepared to look. We loved it. Yeah. In, we visitors. In a, in, a, in, a, in a town which really can be kind of called fairly Philistine, 
back then, uh, I think now, you know, and we've well, had the L'Ompriere thing and so on. Tim Burns made a work um, in 1976 called Crosswalks in Mildura because he claimed that people were attempting to run the artists over. Yeah, that, that is a, a more predominant... That's certainly a more predominant, you know, kind of... <laughs> it's uh, called Crosswalks in Mildura, the little book that he made. is really funny. But, I mean, he is um, an ace provocateur. He's very, very good at... It. He was the one who pointed the Viticon tube at the sun, no question. <laughs> so it, it was out of... It was, it was an out-of-body experience in more ways than one, actually, you know. Um, I have a, another comment about that same theme. I don't live in Mildura, but I've got a lifelong affiliation through my mother's family. And um, there's a couple of things. One is that that kind of moment of cultural revolution that you're talking about in which this happened, there's a kind of regional manifestation of that at the same time in Mildura because of 1973, Britain enters the common market in Europe. Yeah. So the whole dried fruit industry that oh, yeah, yeah. in that region suddenly dies. So there's a crisis in, in the Sunraysia at ah. that period. And um, there's this, this sense of revolution is happening on a number of different levels. Okay. And so there's a kind of profound disorientation around that time that I remember as a, as a kid, actually, because my I'm, grandfather... I'm pretty sure we, we visitors were completely grower. ignorant of this. Yeah, yeah, so there's this interesting history that you can describe in terms of Australian art history. But I think there is also a regional history around these kind of events as well, because okay. I can see ripples of this event in the more recent palimpsest yes, thing yes, that's yes. been happening for the last 20 years. So mm. some of that is probably conscious and some of it is unconscious. Mm. But there is often, I think, in these regional events a real, notwithstanding your point mm. about the philistinism of regional centres and certainly the destruction of a lot of the architectural heritage. No, Mildura is not unique in that regard. But I think that the sculpture trainials, they kind of live on in some ways. They certainly in the palimpsest event. Like, I think it had profound and in some ways unpredictable um, resonance locally. And you probably... So I was, I was interested in whether you'd picked up on any of that in your research and the thesis that you're referencing. I haven't... I wasn't able to go down to Mildura and look in the actual archives myself, not at this stage. What I would say, though, after having spent 17 and a half years in Queensland and working on regional shows, is that I came to have a very healthy respect for the discrimination of regional audiences uh, and the hunger... There's no other word for it. The hunger for things to think about and things to see and do that you encounter in regional Australia. And I learned, um, I learned that there was no predicting who would come up to you and who would be interested in what in any town that you happened to go to. Like Winton, where I once had to spend a week because I did an Australian landscape show for the Outback Regional Gallery at the Walsing Matilda Centre. So, you know, there is this... And, and I, what I came to think, think about after that was, because I'd heard so many stories from people in the bush, was that you would never know which kid had had a transformative experience by seeing a little show that you happened to do or hearing a music performance or hearing a singer. You just have no idea how that might have resonated. Not that they might have gone on to become an artist or anything, but that how someone's life would have been broadened by that. And you, it's, it's, it's imponderable and you can't measure it. Um. I went to, I, I was a, I, I'm an artist and I went to um, RMIT from 82 to 84. And we went to, um, all the students got together, we went to Mildura 
um, triennial in, I think it was 83. Oh, yeah. And they also had Sculpturescape then, and as students, we were allowed to you know, work on Sculpturescape and go to, go to the tip and get materials, and I'm pretty sure it was Tom McCulloch in the, uh, as a director then as well. He had already left by then. Yeah. He, he resigned in 78 and he was working down here on the sculpture mm. triennials. Okay, yeah, well, I'm not sure who, who it was then because I remember meeting but, 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 the, the but, director at that time, but it, it was a great formative experience for yeah, us. And I, I noticed you made a comment that in 1978 it wasn't such a great show and I was wondering if you could add a bit of an end note to your lecture, like what happened to it? Because I think there was one after it went, 83. It went back, well, the 78 one retreated from the town perhaps because it you know it'd been it was so hard to do that sort of thing and I've I, I looked at my photographs and thought you know even though I did get to meet Peter Tindall for the first time and there because he was showing it was a lot of work crammed into the art center and I thought not not as it just wasn't as imaginative as the two previous ones had been in in my view and I think by then Tom was you know hanging on by his fingernails and he, he had done the most amazing, amazing job, absolutely amazing. As for allowing students to, to, to do work, many, I have to say that those shows have always depended on the kindness of students, and that in my turn, I used to drive truckloads of students from Canberra to work on the Biennale of Sydney. I made it a prerequisite of doing a course on international contemporary art that they volunteered. <laughs> and, and, and they um, and told the heads of the workshops that I wouldn't take any slackers, only the people who were doing the best work. And it was amazing, you know, an amazing experience for them to see work by all these people installed, you know, and have 10 days, um, 10 days involved in it all. It's a great learning experience for students, isn't it? Julie, I just have one, one question before we might close and then continue the conversation. It's and nice, I'm waiting for my nice cocktail. Group. And she's waiting for a cocktail. So, we, um, I just You mentioned briefly um, a couple of the works that have been acquired for collections and um, I know there were things happening in institutions at the time and I w wondered whether that was a formative um, uh, moment with Muldura, whether there were kind of key things that came out of those um, works being acquired for institutions or if it was kind of just part and parcel um, at the time. Tony Colling's To Do With Blue was picked up by the NGA before it opened then. It's a great work. Um, Mildura always acquired, you know, it, I mean, they acquired really well. They always acquired about four or five things. In 1975, from memory, Noel Sheridan um, divided um, a whole bunch of money amongst a number of ephemeral projects and just gave the money like prize money to, I think, no fewer than 17 artists because that was a kind of a radical, you know, gesture of equality. I suppose the other thing to say too is I, I don't know enough about the economics of it. I'd have to ask, I'd have to interview someone. I don't understand whether Mildura was able to pay for much of the commissioning. Uh, I've known a lot of sculptors in my life and they've always been broke because it's a very expensive practice. So I don't know that it was um, as sustaining as, as art galleries are able to be now. But, you know, it's got a really terrific collection in Mildura as a result of these projects, it really does. Uh, and the, the model of working directly with artists was certainly something that Tom took to Sydney uh, and 
there were two defining works in his Biennale. One of them is still in Canberra. It's the fog sculpture by the Japanese Fujiko Nagaya. It's still there. It's still wonderful. Thanks, Miriam, Thank you. for the question. Thanks questions. so much. And please join me in thanking Julie for a really generous speech. Um, and before we finish up with a few more cocktails from the Melbourne Gin Company, uh, hand-delivered to Julie, <laughs> um, I just want to mention the two... The two final lectures um, in this series um, for the year are A Room of Their Own, Creating Space for the Feminist Collective on Monday the 7th of October, and that's uh, by Janine Burke with respondent Helen Hughes. And then the final lecture will be Post-Object Art in Australia and New Zealand by Anne Marsh on the 4th of November. Thank you so much. <laughs>